Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where we give you facts and not opinion. What a show we have for you today. You better buckle your seatbelts. We've got quite a few things flying at us, including some new polling data. The Just the News team has started a new poll with the great pollster Scott Rasmussen. And our first couple polls are going to give you some insights as to why the president, President Trump, may be talking about how important it is to restart the economy. You're going to learn what Americans think and why Joe Biden has been pretty hard to find in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. Some really great polling data. And then we have exclusive interviews. First, with one of the great professors at Hillsdale College who talks a little bit about what that college has been doing to offer free online courses to high school students who are trapped at home with their parents. They may not have online learning from their high schools or they may be trying to get ready for college. And Hillsdale College has done something very special. They've opened up a bunch of free courses for high schoolers to take. And we're gonna talk about that dynamic and also how the nature of learning may be permanently changed by this stay at home pandemic experience that we're all going through. And then when we come back from that, we have Former Congressman Daryl Issa, yes, he's trying to make a comeback to Congress in California's 50th district. He, uh, if you remember, was the congressman who did the Fast and Furious oversight hearings. He did many other great uh, hearings involving oversight of government agencies. He is here to talk about pandemic, about the FBI, about elections. So much to talk about. You're not going to want to miss Daryl Issa's insights. Here's a hint. He's not a big fan of the World Health Organization. But first, we're going to go to a commercial break. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some of the exclusive stories we've been breaking on Just the News, the inside scoop. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after the commercial break. You're not going to want to miss us. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And uh, as we promised in a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Hillsdale professor Kyle Mernon. He's got a fantastic story about a suite of online learning courses that the college out in Michigan uh, has made available for free for parents and for their high school students to take along everything from the Constitution to the Federalist Papers to many other uh, very important things. World War II, a, a course by Victor David Hansen, the, the great historian. Uh, it is uh, a really fun story, and it just shows all the innovative ways that people are adapting life as we're trapped at home. Hillsdale College comes to the rescue for 
uh, high school students who may not have their own online learning courses or just want to get a taste of college early, it's a fun story. Uh, we also have, as I mentioned, uh, Congressman Daryl Issa, the former congressman, trying to make a comeback in Congress this fall. He was one of the House's most important oversight chairman for a long time. He's got some really important things to talk about, about NIH, the World Health Organization, the CDC, all of the federal bureaucracy failures in the healthcare crisis that we're now experiencing in the pandemic. And he talks about the FBI, lots of great things. We're going to break that interview into two parts. You'll get the rest of it on Thursday, but you're not going to want to miss Daryl Issa's insights. He really understands what goes wrong in government, how you fix it, how you do real oversight in Congress. And I think his insights will be extraordinarily interesting. Uh, now, at Just the News, we had a new addition to our repertoire this week. We started a daily poll. That's right. We're measuring your sentiments in real America about the issues that matter. And our first couple of polls yesterday and today are some real newsworthy ones because they dig into the underlying sentiments that we all have about the pandemic and about our leaders. And I just want to give you some early results. So yesterday's poll had a real eye-opener for me, and that was, you think in the middle of a pandemic, maybe the biggest fear that people have, the biggest concern they have is about their health. Am I going to get this virus? Am I going to die from it? Am I going to get pneumonia? Am I going to end up in the hospital? But it turns out that the great poll done by Scott Rasmussen, the great pollster, um, uh, here's what it found. The number one fear that Americans have about this pandemic, 30% of Americans total, loss of income. They're worried about the economy. Explains a little bit why President Trump keeps trying to signal optimism that we are going to get this economy opened, that we're not going to have to stay in this uh, hunched uh, down position in our homes for forever. Uh, there's a real fear in America that we're going to lose our ability to pay our bills and to keep our home, keep our jobs. Number one uh, thing. The second biggest fear, 27%, was inability to get supplies. If you've been to the grocery store lately, you know why you're talking about there. 23% uh, were concerned about other issues. And then the most important one, 4% was only health. Only 4% of America think that health, getting sick, possibly dying, catching this terrible virus, was the biggest fear they held from the pandemic. Very eye-opening and explains some of the dynamics you're seeing playing out in the political spectrum today. Um, now, the new one coming out today, hot off the presses, is which of our Democratic leaders uh, has shown the most uh, leadership up, uh, when compared to President Trump during the pandemic? And so President Trump gets high marks for his leadership during the pandemic, not surprising, as the commander in chief and on television every day with his briefings. Uh, Andrew Cuomo finished at the top of the list, the New York governor. Not surprising. He's had a daily press conference just like um, uh, President Trump and has shown assertiveness and command. And quite frankly, the two of them, Trump and Cuomo, have had a lot of bipartisan moments praising each other and working with each other and calling each other. But the guy who didn't show up in the top three, he finished four out of five, Joe Biden. That's right. The presumptive Democrats nominee for the fall election against President Trump. He came in fourth out of five among the Democratic leaders that Americans thought uh, were doing a good job. Very low showing for him. He's been sort of invisible for much of this pandemic. You know, does a podcast here and a, a talk show there. Uh, but this has to be a concern for Democrats in the real field uh, in, the, uh, in the election and the, uh, what they're seeing. They have to be concerned that Joe Biden hasn't found a way to gain oxygen, to show leadership, to, to come up with ideas that capture the American fancy as we're trying to get back 
on our feet after this horrific virus and this pandemic. Two real eye-opening uh, polls. A great way to start the new Justin News Daily Poll with Scott Rasmussen. Every day at 2 o'clock, if you come to the Justin News website, you can check out our latest findings. Here's a hint. On Wednesday, there's going to be a poll about the FBI and Americans' trust in the FISA process. You're going to want to see that one. It's a barn burner. All right, one more thing before we go to the commercial break and get ready for press, uh, for our conversations with Hillsdale and with um, uh, Daryl Issa. I want to talk about a great piece of enterprise, once again, by my colleague, Christine Dolan. She has done amazing work in digging into how federal bureaucratic agencies, hospital bureaucracies have all let us down uh, in the months and years leading up to this pandemic. Everybody knew a big pandemic was coming. Bill Gates, congressional hearings, we've, we've talked about it. We created a stockpile. We, we uh, created experts and bureaucracies to prepare for this. And then when the actual pandemic hit, we found ourselves short of uh, ventilators, short of respirators. And we're talking by hundreds of millions of missing respirators. She's dug into every aspect of which agencies dropped the ball on each item. But there's a really uh, interesting interview she did today uh, with Dennis Carroll. And you probably have never heard of Dennis Carroll, but he is the chief U.S. virus hunter. For 15 years, starting with President Bush and continuing through the Obama and Trump years, Dennis Carroll was the man sent out to the front lines to find the next big virus that might jump from animals like bats and and, uh, jump into humans and create the potential for a pandemic or an outbreak, sickening people with something that we had no immunity to, a virus that we had no immunity to. And he, uh, Christine really pressed him on, how are we getting this wrong? What are we doing wrong? And he had uh, some sentiments that I think a lot of us in real America share. He said, uh, first off, that COVID-19 was detected last year. They saw it in the animals on the front line. We just didn't trigger the global response that we needed to get ready to protect humanity for when it jumped to uh, humans. And so sleep at the switch, the WHO, CDC, all those not seeing this new COVID-19 virus that was appearing in animals making that leap and then taking over uh, the world with sickness. So that that's a, a big eye opener. I didn't know that they had detected it in animals a year ago, but it clearly was on our radar. It just didn't trigger action. But he said that the problem isn't just this episode. The problem is the entire paradigm that by which the world governments, the World Health Organization, for instance, and Daryl Issa is going to talk a lot about that later, but uh, and our federal science agencies, what's wrong with our uh, approach? And it's basically, we've been in too much of a defensive posture. And I'm going to read you this quote from Christine Dolan's story tomorrow, uh, uh, today on Just the News. Go see it. It's worth reading. Dennis Carroll, chief U.S. virus hunter, here's what he had to say. Quote, we need to stop playing victims, stop being reactive and, and on defense, and go on offense and take the fight of global health security to the viruses themselves. We knew a coronavirus, a coronavirus was out there a year ago in animals. Now it's in us. We needed to go after them instead of them coming to us. We dropped the ball. That is a fascinating insight from the guy who we've trusted for the last 15 years to give us the warning. The warning was there. The posture that Americans and our science community and our hospitals found themselves in is the problem. Rather than going out and finding the next virus and starting to get uh, testing done on potential immunizations and vaccinations, 
and uh, finding interim medicines that can help with treatment, lessen the symptoms, reverse the damage that's being done. Um, we have uh, a system that just waited till it hit us, and then we went to our stockpile, found out it was empty, and before you know it, we're upside down on, uh, on a pandemic, and we're all locked in our homes, and the economy's come to a screeching halt. You got to read Dennis Carroll's prescriptions. He has a tremendous idea for how we fix this, how we learn from this terrible mistake, just like we learned from the mistakes of 9-11 and our failure to be ready for terrorism. We can learn from this episode. We can reform our science agencies. He has some really big ideas that are uh, quite simple to uh, fund, quite simple to address, quite simple to execute, and I encourage you to read it. And one last one, uh, I'll give you a little scoop. Tomorrow morning, we're going to have a great story on Just the News. It's one I've been working on. And I call it the great sugar pill because this has, story hasn't been told. We've heard a lot of finger pointing and blaming going on among politicians. Uh, the uh, Republicans say, and correctly so, that Barack Obama didn't re uh, resupply the uh, stockpile of masks. That's why we're short. We, we hear Democrats say President Trump didn't do this or that quick enough. And that's why we're in this crisis. And that's just the classic politics of Washington. But here's something that may have been one of the biggest and most important missed opportunities in this pandemic. Back in October 2018, the chief watchdog for the Health and Human Services Department, HHS as we call it, did a survey of hospitals. It was the second one in four years. And back in 2014, hospitals raised their hand and said, we don't feel like we're ready for a pandemic. We don't have supplies. We don't have training. We don't have uh, medicines. We don't have protocols. We don't have routines. We don't have isolation units. We're not ready. That's what they said in 2014. Well, at the midway into the second year of the Trump administration, the HHS IG, the inspector general, the chief watchdog, went back to these hospitals, he interviewed 400 of them, and here's what happened. 86% of them said, yep, we're ready for the pandemic. We've beefed up on supplies. We've beefed up on uh, uh, training. We've beefed up on isolation. We've beefed up on beds, on respirators. We're in pretty good shape, although we could be overwhelmed, but we're in pretty good shape. Well, that turns out to be a pretty big sugar pill that had a lot of costly consequences. It turns out, as we now know, that hospitals did not have enough supplies, did not have enough training. They didn't even have the basic $2, $3 mask that uh, their nurses and doctors and frontline healthcare workers could wear to protect themselves from the virus. What a drop ball. What a sugar pill they served all of us back in October of 2018. When this is all done, we're going to take a look at all these different agencies. The World Health Organization didn't do what it needed to do to warn us about what was going on in China. The CDC was slow to get testing out. The NIH dropped the ball on drugs like chloroquine and others that showed promise, but we never put them into clinical tests against earlier coronaviruses. And so we started from square one at the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, and I think another agency or another bureaucracy that's going to be highlighted for its failures, its cost-cutting, its um, unpreparedness are the hospital bureaucracies of America. These hospitals have let their workers and doctors and nurses uh, go out into danger, even though there was plenty of money and time to prepare for this. And I encourage you to read this report along with Christine Dolan's report, the great interview with Dennis Carroll, the chief U.S. virus hunter. You'll find both on justthenews.com. You won't be disappointed. All right, when we come back from the commercial break, we're going to hear from Hillsdale College, our friends there. What a great program they have. They're giving your high school students some free online learning while they're trapped at home. You don't want to miss that. And then after that, Daryl Issa, the former congressman, joins us. 
We're going to talk about a lot of needed oversight in America. You're not going to want to miss either one of those interviews, so stay tuned. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, I have with me Professor Kyle Mernon from Hillsdale College. And they're doing some amazing stuff during the middle of this pandemic with a project that they call The Great American Story, which is giving high school students an opportunity to begin learning at the college level while they're trapped at home with mom and dad. Uh, Professor Mernon, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, it's great to be here, John. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about what inspired this and uh, and what the reaction has been so far with uh, with this course. So we decided to do this course. There's there's this great professor from the University of Oklahoma. His name's Wilfred McClay. He's, he's also a teaching fellow here at Hillsdale College. He wrote a book called The Land of Hope, uh, which is a high school history textbook, also a college history textbook. And there aren't many uh, great ones of those out there. A, a lot of times they're they're difficult to read. Um, often they they aren't good narratives, but ideological in nature, right? And kind of tell the the tale of America as a as a tale of of repression or or oppression and uh, injustice. And so he wrote this great book called The Land of Hope. Um, and we wanted to do an online course based on that book. So we produced that earlier this year. It's a twenty five lecture course. It takes you tells the great story of America from its discovery all the way through uh, today. Um, and we thought that that was a, a great thing for all of us to, uh, to study. And so we, we created this free online course for any American to take. That's amazing. And when you created it, you had no idea there was a pandemic coming. But uh, when the pandemic struck, tell me what happened. What sort of reaction did you get from high school students and students all across the country? Yeah, we, we, we have a lot of people that are, that are stuck at home and a lot of high school students who unfortunately have their, their school years interrupted. So we put together a three-week study session. We're actually on week three right now. Uh, 10,000 people joined us. Um, a large percentage of them are high school students taking the course. And we want to just work through these lessons, um, have some, some additional discussion. We're going to have a high school essay contest connected to this course. And so it was just a, a, a nice opportunity uh, for us to keep our sanity and, and be a little bit productive uh, during this strange time. Uh, it's, it's really amazing. And uh, 10,000 is a huge number. So uh, what happened? How did the word of mouth come? How did people you know, glob onto this and uh, find out about this uh, so quickly? Yeah, it was, it was really exciting. So we have a, a decent audience here at Hillsdale through Primus and some of our other outreach efforts. Uh, we've been doing these online courses for eight years now, and, and, and a good number of people take those. Um, but it was exciting in, in short notice. We, we just promoted this idea for a couple of days um, and then started the course. In short notice, we, we just had a great response. And, and that's been really encouraging. So, so obviously there was some word of mouth. And I think, you know, I'm a parent as well with some school-aged kids. I, I think a lot of parents were looking around and saying, what are we going to do uh, these next few months? And, and uh, I think this was a, a great 
great opportunity for some parents. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, here's the big question. What's next? If this, this obviously took off and got uh, uh, the public's <laughs> fancy right away, where do you go next with this? Well, so, you know, I, I think this was, this was a, an appropriate one. We, we talk about, you know, needing to know American history. Uh, Dr. McClay says uh, history keeps us from falling into the, the trap of, of the exceptional now, right? We need to understand American history and, and the trials we've had in the past. Um, if we're going to, you know, face difficult things in the present. So, so that's been really appropriate. I, I think the next one, we'll do a similar course um, or a similar program for our Constitution 101 course. It's probably our most popular uh, free online course we have here at the college. And that just examines the Declaration and the Constitution. What are the principles? Um, how have these documents been understood and treated throughout American history from, you know, the, the, the sectional conflict of the Civil War through the progressive era all the way to today. Uh, so that's, that, that's a very popular and important course. Um, and I think a nice one to pair with, with the study of American history, right? So, so know the, the people and places and things, um, and then also know the political principles of America. And, and uh, so that'll probably be the next, next big push that we make. That's really exciting. And it's funny, um, <clears throat> when I talk around the country, uh, one of the things that I hear from people my generation up is a concern that there's sort of a civics um, gap in America, that uh, civics and history are yeah. a place that we have a blind spot in our younger generation. So this is a sort of thing that could really fill a void. If you're stuck at home, you can you can be learning and becoming more civically responsible, uh, more civically literate um, while uh, while passing the time during the middle of a pandemic. It sounds like a great um, a great opportunity. The as you look out, and you know Hillsdale has uh, the traditional classes in uh, in their classrooms. Is this pandemic going to change the nature of learning? Are we going to see more remote learning, more online learning, um, just because of the forced nature of what we had to go through the last few weeks? You know, it, that that seems to be the case, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, Hillsdale is reluctant about that, right? Because uh, we see how important and how beautiful it is to be able to have our students here on campus. Um, the kind of the kind of culture and the kind of environment you have when you have a, a professor with with a, a small classroom and you can discuss these ideas and, and figure them out as a group. Um, we think that's the best, um, but it does seem like um, more education can be pushed online, and and we're going to have to figure out good ways to do that and to try to capture the best of what happens here on campus and in the classroom. So. So that does seem to be the case, John, and, and we're going to try to figure that out as, as best we can. It is remarkable. So uh, what is the status at, at on campus right now? All students are home, right? And Hillsdale is essentially uh, in a kind of yeah. a remote uh, learning situation? Yeah, that is. It, it is very strange here for it to be April in, in Hillsdale and, and the campus is quiet. Um, the, the, the faculty is still here. Um, they're teaching their courses. Most of them are, are doing it over video conferencing um, and having the conversation that way, and it seems like the spirit for the students is pretty high. They're all uh, logging in and, and doing their work, um, and and staying pretty optimistic about it all. Although, you know, this this is an especially sad time to have school closed. Uh, this time of year is when we have all of our fun events, and and we get to honor the seniors. It's uh it's tough to be to be shut down at this time. Yeah, that's when you're most want human contact when you can celebrate and and uh, especially for those who've been in school for four years and we're looking forward to their graduation. Um, is you Absolutely. if you have a crystal ball uh, and you're using it right now, uh, how will Hillsdale's graduation and how will the summer play out? Because uh, you have summer courses, right? And summer students, 
what yeah. sort of plans is the university making to get to get through these next few months? You know, I, I I'm not certain on that. I I, I know that Dr. Arn is the president of the college. He's, he's doing all that he can uh, possible to to bring the students back as early as it is safe to do so. Uh, so we're we're trying to figure that out right now. Uh, I think we're hoping to do that sometime in April. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be possible. Um, I do know that we're gonna we're gonna look for some way, certainly to to get the seniors back here, uh, and give them some kind of appropriate send off, um, if if it's not May, sometime in the summer, uh, to make sure that that we end end the year on a on a good and appropriate note. I think that's I think that's the the work that they're trying to figure out right now. But you've been covering this. Everything everything changes so much day by day, right, John? It it's, it's hard to. It's hard to is. make any firm predictions right now. Yeah, no, I think we're still learning as we go. And, you know, there's some hopeful signs that markets are up to uh, this week. And I think also uh, one of the early signs that there are some appears to be some cresting in New York and Italy, which were hotspots. So yeah. I know hope springs eternal that we, we're eventually going to put this behind us. But I think you're right. The, the fluidity, the fluid nature of it is is what uh, has made it so challenging. The um, for those who want, uh, there's a mom and dad, a grandparent, or a student that's looking. How do you get into this course? What's the easy way to get online and find this course and get learning? So we try to keep it pretty simple for people. Um, you can go to online.hillsdale.edu. That's online.hillsdale.edu. Uh, that's our website. You can you can go there. You can you can see Land of Hope and our 24 other free courses. Just simply click on one of those courses. Um, enter your email address and your name. Create a password. Um, and then you're taken right to the course page, uh, and you can you can take any of those 25 courses for free. We hope you come back often and learn with us. And we do try to to produce a lot of the the great courses that our undergraduates take here, a lot of the required courses that we have here. Um, so so anybody in America uh, can can have a, a taste and, and and get a sense of the kind of learning that happens in Hillsdale, um, and and really enjoy studying some of the greatest things. Uh, that's possible to know. And it's totally free, which you don't hear very often in America today. That's a pretty good price. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we uh, we like keeping it at that price. And, and it's pretty fun. <laughs> so of the 24 courses, what are some of the other uh, topics that people can dig into? Sure. There's, there's a lot of, um, th there's some good variety there. We have a really popular course um, called the Genesis Story on the book of Genesis. Uh, we have a course on the Second World Wars taught by uh, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, it's very wow. popular course on, on C.S. Lewis, um, which, which has been really good, Constitution 101, the Federalist Papers, courses on the presidency and the Supreme Court and Congress, uh, courses on, on great literature, so the great books, Shakespeare, Mark Twain, um, and then courses, uh, we have a Theology 101 course, course on free market economics. So there are a range of courses that you can take um, and, and kind of build your liberal arts education online with us. Now, do, uh, do you get accredited points for um, uh, towards your college degree if you take these, or are these mostly for exercising the mind? These are these are these are for love of learning. These do not Excellent. we do not have accredited online courses at this point. Um, right. So it's for for a free general audience. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, for all of us trapped at home trying to keep our minds short, uh, sharp, and our kids out of trouble, this is a, a extraordinary opportunity. When I heard about it the other day, I couldn't wait to learn more and, and to introduce it to our. Um, podcast listeners. All right, folks, so let me give you, this is as easy a URL as you're ever going to remember. It's online.hillsdale.edu. Let me try that one more time. It's online.hillsdale.edu. It's 24 courses, everything from World War II to the Federalist Papers, and, and uh, a great way to keep your high school students, your college students, 
or even mom and dad occupied while we're all trapped at home enjoying family life together. So uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And um, we'll check back in a few um, months. I'd like to learn a little bit more about uh, how education uh, is going to adapt in this in this era of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll have you back soon to, to talk about the things that are adapting in the learning space. No, I appreciate it, John. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Have a great day. We'll be right back uh, after this commercial break. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. And when we come back, Daryl Issa, the former congressman from California, trying to make a comeback in California's 50th district this fall. He's got a big story to tell on oversight, what we learned in the past and what we're going to learn in the future about the agencies that are letting us down, NIH, CDC, the World Health Organization, and yes, the FBI in the Russia case. Uh, first, uh, let's go to commercial break and we'll be right back with Daryl Ison. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And joining me, as promised, is Congressman Daryl Issa from California. The congressman served for 20 years, uh, more than 20 years, actually, in Congress. I got to know him when I was a reporter with the Associated Press, doing a lot of the oversight issues that he did in Congress. And then he retired in 2018 and is now coming back to run in the 50th District of California and try to keep that seat in Republican hands this fall. Congressman Issa, good to have you with us. Well, good to be on. And uh you know, it's uh, in California, we're known for recycling, I think even even politicians, <laughs> apparently. How about that? Well, there's a lot to give there. The um, congratulations first, I guess you uh, you won your primary back in March. And uh, now it's a two two man race for the fall election. It is. And it's uh, it's an interesting uh, time because uh, uh, we're not able to campaign. So the, uh, the the very nature of this race is that we're sort of locked in where were we in March when everything shut down. And it may be that way, well, a lot closer to November than we'd like. Yeah, that's the scary part. So it really has changed. I've noticed like on your Twitter and Facebook feeds, you do virtual updates for your uh, future constituents, correct? Exactly. We're trying to, uh, I don't want to say act like an incumbent, but because there is no uh, current member in the 50th congressional, I've been working with my uh, my former colleagues and future colleagues 
to make sure that I can provide updates to people in the 50th Congressional District. Plus, I'm quite lucky that uh, I have longstanding relationships with my mayors and county supervisors, and they've been incredibly helpful to try to fill in the void. And the um, how are constituents reacting? Obviously, they're, they're locked indoors just like you, but uh, what sort of engagement and, and uh, activities are you able to do to, to reach out to everyday constituents in your district? Well, we've done both teletown hall meetings, uh, via conventional phone, but we've also done Zoom. Uh, what we're finding uh, is that uh, people want human contact. So uh, where, you know, a lot of times the information's available on a website, uh, they still want to be, they still want to hear a voice, tell them a little bit about it. And particularly that, that balancing question that the president is wrestling with and that our country's wrestling with, which is, how much is safety worth, uh, in other words, how much is a human life worth versus our economy? And, you know, people aren't in one camp or the other. They're sort of in between saying, you know, I don't, I'm concerned about the future. I'm concerned about my family. Let's not wreck the economy. How can we do both? Be relatively safe, uh, minimize the loss of life, but keep our economy strong. It, it is the big debate. We had a, um, a poll yesterday on Just the News, which is our new news organization. And uh, the overwhelming concern that Americans cited out of the five most important concerns was the loss of income and their fear that this thing would drag on long enough that they would lose their, their home or their, their uh, mortgage or their payments. Um, and then interestingly, three down from that was concern about health. It was much lower, like 6% had that as their primary concern. As we get further into this, how uh, how do we resolve this question? Do you have in your mind the sort of data points that you think are there uh, that we need to hit in order to let some people get back into the workforce and resume all that human contact we had just a month ago? I do. Uh, working with uh, Admiral Jackson, Ronnie Jackson, who was for many years the White House physician, uh, and it, oddly enough is going to be a congressman from uh, Texas 13. Uh, we put together a number of ideas and presented them to the White House, basically showing that if you can have a uh, an essential person at McDonald's or Burger King providing food or at Costco providing you know wholesale items, then the question is who is equally or even more qualified to go back to work in what may not be essential on a daily basis but is essential for our economy. And, and I'll just give you the easy answer. Today, uh, you have automotive repair, repair places are open in California, they're essential. And there's not a lot of business, people are deferring maintenance a lot. Right. But the manufacturer of parts, in many cases in the United States, repair parts for those cars, Ford, GM, Chrysler and the like, they're shut down. So. For today, the essential is consuming a stockpile of parts. If we do not begin to roll those people back in some safe way to producing the parts needed to keep our automobiles on the road, then the essential people won't be able to work. And that concept of every job, everyone is ultimately essential, uh, when we could 
we could debate whether or not uh, uh, there are some non-essential, but the people who produce the goods and services necessary for essential personnel to do their job must right. be back to work. And so rolling out in stages by region and by manufacturer, that ability as soon as possible has to be part of the president's one month agenda of who could we put back to work safely. That's going to be the real challenge. And your sense is that people are beginning to map those issues out, right? Try to figure out where in the chain we begin that process? Absolutely. And and let's look at the American psyche, too. What's important to an American to keep us positive and productive? If you're sitting at home and over time, it's very depressing. You're all alone. Even if you're working, your productivity is going to go down. So for an example, and, and I use this example because I think it's important to Americans, we're already in baseball season, but there's no baseball. Now, we understand why we can't fill a stadium or baseball park filled with 30,000 attendees. But there's a real question about how long before with the appropriate separation that pretty much exists on a baseball team. Why is it we couldn't put baseball players back to work, even if it's only televised? Is that a way to begin normalizing for America without taking an undue risk? Uh, there are some contact sports that are much harder to do, but right. golf and baseball in a number of areas without you know, large crowds could well be part of that structure. And the leadership of President uh, Trump in this case of separating us so we could break the back of this uh, virus was essential. But bringing us in an organized way back together is equally important. And it's part of what many of us are trying to uh, provide counseling, if you will, to people in the White House, because as you can imagine, there's nothing more isolated right now than being in the Oval Office uh, at a time when it's almost impossible to have those face to face. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, he's surrounded by doctors who have all the right medical advice, but you also need economy doctors. And uh, you obviously bring something special to this because for, for more before your time in Congress, you were a CEO of a, a large company. So you sort of know the economic side of this. And, and uh, are you finding the White House welcoming of this sort of advice? Well, I'm finding them welcoming. Uh, I, I will share something, though, because, uh, you know, the one thing you know in business is the smartest businessman f hires smarter people. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, true. I spent about half an hour on the phone with Art Laffer going over a seven-page report that the White House asked him to give, which he did, um, and reviewing it. Because the president isn't just reaching out to a businessman here or there. He's reaching out to some of these amazing longtime economists. As you know, Art Laffer uh, sure, was a whiz kid. Whiz, well, he was actually in the Nixon White House and survived and then was in the Reagan White House as the head of the economic section. And right. he continues to be a, a perfect example of somebody who understands what it takes, where the, the levers are in our economy. And he, for one, like myself, knows that we can, in fact, get ourselves back into productivity, and we must. Yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting to know that that many uh, those minds are all coming together now and trying to give the best uh, uh, philosophy and tactics to get us uh, in into a, a normal rhythm again. 
you um, you had a history in Congress of doing really aggressive oversight, helping Americans understand when their government did things wrong. I remember very poignantly the work you did uh, with the Border Patrol after the Brian Terry death and the investigations you did there. At some point, the question that Americans ask me every day is going to have to be answered by Congress. How did we enter into a, p- a pandemic like this so ill-prepared in our federal bureaucracy? And I'm curious, as, as you look at it, as someone who did a lot of very effective oversight for many years, what, um, where would you start in this tale of unpreparedness and lack of supplies and all the things that President Trump inherited uh, from the prior administrations? Well, uh, it actually begins globally at the World Health Organization. We are the largest contributor to that organization, and they have the principal responsibility for seeing a pandemic early on for recognizing hotspots of various everything from, you know, obviously this virus to Ebola to uh, AIDS and so on. And our investment there has been a poorly, uh, a poor investment in many ways, because their bureaucracy has essentially said a pandemic is inevitable, rather than saying, what are the steps it takes when the inevitable happens? So I start there with recognizing that we can't depend on the World Health Organization. We're going to have to uh, find a way to duplicate that in the U.S. for our global reach. But then when you get to the CDC, they really seem to have said, well, we work with the, the World Health Organization. Well, that's that next step of don't let a don't let a domestic bureaucracy count on a global bureaucracy that is essentially given up. And uh, so for the CDC, uh, the aftermath is going to be the things we were able to do, thanks to President Trump's leadership uh, and Vice President Pence's in 30, 60, 90 days. Let's talk about how many of those you should have had sitting on a shelf at a reasonable cost, faster testing, uh, low blood testing, uh, a a capability and a plan to quickly come up with a virus uh, vaccine in 30, 60, 90 days, not in a year and a half. Those questions will have to be asked. And as you can tell by those doctors that are surrounding the president today, they can look the American people in the eye in the middle of this pandemic and say, it's gonna take a year and a half to have a vaccine, even though they have what appears to be a working vaccine today. It's that kind of bureaucratic timetable that Congress is gonna have to say, we cannot afford it too many lives are at stake and too much of the global economy is at stake. Uh, we had an interview this morning with the, the chief U.S. virus hunter, a guy named Dennis Carroll. And for 15 years, starting with President Bush back in 2005, he was the guy out on the horizon looking and trying to find what next virus might jump from animals to humans and, and potentially lead to a pandemic. And so he lived through SARS. He lived through uh, H1N1 and all the uh, the Ebola crisis in fourteen. And he said something fascinating to our reporter, Christine Doling, and said the problem with the American approach to pandemics is we, we play the victim. We're, we're reactive, we're on defense, and we should be on offense. There's a way to get ahead of these viruses and create um, uh, immunizations early that are generic to a coronavirus family that you can quickly adapt and then put into the marketplace. 
Do you feel like we've been for maybe the last 10, 20 years too much on defense with viruses and that there's a chance to go on offense like the ways you just talked about? Well, absolutely. And the coronavirus is a good example, uh, uh, although corona generally is the shape of the virus. Uh, we have had vaccines for various coronaviruses for our dogs and cats and so on. Um, and as you know, recently, a, a zoo keeper infected his his cats yeah, with tiger. his coronavirus. So uh, recognizing that these viruses can and will jump between humans and animals, we have to be in a position where we look at every virus that an animal has, and we assume it'll eventually get to man, and we prepare for that, and vice versa. Recognize that uh, that animal that human viruses can and will get into animals and, of course, mutate and come back a little different. Uh, this kind of science is well understood, but the speed of science simply has been allowed to get slower rather than faster. And I, I know your uh, listeners are, are well-informed, but it would shock even the most well-informed person to, to see how, how much time and money has been added to vaccine production in the last two decades, doubling the, more than doubling in constant dollars the price and typically adding 50% to the time. You would think that in a modern era, everything gets faster and more efficient, but not viruses. And it's not because they become more complicated. It's because we've become more bureaucratic. That's, uh, I think, at the end of the day, what we're going to learn about this crisis, which is that it's the ultimate failure of, of a chain of bureaucracies. You mentioned WHO and the WHO, and you mentioned um, CDC. Another one that I think uh, you and many other good congressmen did good oversight on over the years was NIH, where we, we provide about $40 billion a year in research money. And then we end up with studies like, uh, what do you do with drunken monkeys? Or uh, how do you uh, stop uh, kids from drinking at a tailgate party? Uh, and we don't get some of the expenditures on things that were flagged, let's say, in 03 and 04 and 05, when the first studies came out and said, hey, there's this drug chloroquine. It looked like it worked on some of the the early SARS and MERS patients, maybe we should look at it. Is there a, a day of reckoning coming ahead for federal science agencies that they should spend our dollars better and, and cut our red tape quicker? There should be, and there has to be. And uh, the transparency of the NIH uh, has been a problem. Their theory, and they'll tell you straight to your, that you shouldn't interfere with science. And many of my Democratic friends uh, will defend the fact that, well, you can't interfere with science. And it's like, well, wait a second, we're not interfering with science. We're interfering with the f science's decision of where money gets spent. Uh, I I'll never forget many, many years ago, uh, uh, oddly enough, uh, Jeff Flake was still a House member, and he he asked to take down a uh, an amendment or have an amendment to take down an appropriation at M NIH for a grant for studying the effects of marijuana and malt liquor on college co-eds. <laughs> and and you can imagine the debate on the floor of people who said, well, yeah, we kind of do know the effect. Uh, yes, it was an exactly. absurd study. And what was amazing, it wasn't even the first in a family of similar studies. Um, and those kinds of things, although novel and interesting and sometimes funny on the floor of the House, are examples where I'm not asking to spend less money. I'm asking to spend it in a way that saves more lives and that puts real attention toward either pure research 
or research toward a specific goal and not this sort of fanciful who submitted a grant that, that somebody NIH likes the guy. And I will say this, NIH's biggest problem, they always say it stands for not invented here, but their biggest <laughs> problem consistently is their own peer review people are in fact the people who decide who gets grants often to its their own peer review. And yeah, the incestuousness of that organization has to be changed. You've got to be at a point where the decision makers are not exclusively or even the majority of the decision makers cannot be the recipients. It is remarkable. And I did a, a series of stories back um, in the late 90s, early 2000s that revealed that a lot of NHI, NIH researchers they take taxpayer money, they invent a patent for a drug or a, a medicine that's going to become part of drugs, and then they get to keep the royalties on that drug, even though the American taxpayer uh, funded the original research. And so there's, there's an interesting culture in the NIH that's it's insular. And, and, and until we have events like a pandemic, most Americans don't understand uh, the, the, the culture that has brought on this huge bureaucracy. No, and, and this, by the way, is true, not just, uh, you know, in the NIH. Uh, the University of California at San Diego receives over $1 billion of grant money, mostly for biologics, and almost all of it, uh, if successful, will turn into patents that do not come to the United States government, but in fact go to the professors and, and some of the pharmaceuticals who, who oversee it but ultimately don't make the big investment until they can see that it's going to earn them a dividend. And right. again, that's uh, that's one of those things where you kind of ask, wait a second, if this is our money, our investment and our risk, why is, and I have no problem with monetizing it, but why is it so little ends up in the, uh, in the taxpayers refund for this billion dollars in just one university of investment? All right, America, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. So glad you joined us. So appreciative of your support of Just the News and also of all the Just the News advertisers that are supporting this podcast on our website, making our investigative and enterprise reporting possible. Uh, we're going to be back on Thursday for part two of the Daryl Issa interview. You're not going to want to miss that. He talks about elections and Nancy Pelosi and the role that healthcare and other issues will play. And more importantly, he also talks about the FBI, and the way that agency needs to repair itself to get back Americans' trust, to give us all confidence that when they spy in America's under the FISA law, that we believe they're complying with the law. And we're also going to be joined on Thursday by none other than Scott Rasmussen, the great pollster. Yes, he is the new pollster for Just the News and the Just the News Daily Poll with Scott Rasmussen. We're going to talk about some of our big new findings, the early polls that are coming out, some real shockers about what, what you and real America are thinking about. And of course, we'll have new breaking news and investigative reporting from justthenews.com. So please come back and join us on Thursday. We're so grateful. Uh, until then, be safe, be healthy, enjoy your families, be productive, and let's all look forward to the moment when we can reopen America and, and get back to work, get back to everyday life. I miss baseball, I have to admit it. I miss it badly. But it'll be here soon. All right, folks, talk to you on Thursday.